Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't live a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and we are on Season 2, Episode 6. Today, we're going to be doing Part 1 of the Bell Witch of Adams, Tennessee. The first part, we're going to talk about the history of the Bell Witch. And then in Part 2, we'll talk about the theories of who the Bell Witch is and about the stories of the hauntings today, which is over 200 years later. And joining me today is Haley. Hi. And before we get started, I'm going to let Haley tell you about the three ways to win our contest. So to win our logo t-shirt, all you have to do is go on our Instagram at Haunting History and tag three friends in any of our posts and your name will be entered one time or review us on any of the platforms that you listen on. Take a screenshot and email it to us at hauntinghistorypodcast at gmail.com and then you'll be entered three times to win the t-shirt or join any level of our Patreon and you'll be entered five times. And this is just until the end of February, right? You have until the end of the month. So you can enter as many times as you'd like and your name will keep going into the drawing for more chances to win our logo t-shirt, which we got on Saturday and they're super cute. So we'll post a picture of them on our Instagram page. The story today starts back in 1817 in Adams, Tennessee. It was the site of one of the most well-known hauntings in American history. Well, probably not the most well-known, but at least the longest running story of paranormal activity and or folklore, as some people call it. At the time, though, it was so well-known that it eventually caught the attention and the involvement of a future president of the United States. Known as the Bell Witch or the Bell Witch Cave, named for the family whose home that the activity first presented itself, came the strange and often violent activity. Some called it poltergeist activity, and I'm not sure why they called it that. Uh, the definition of a poltergeist is poltergeist is a German word for noisy ghost or noisy spirit. And it's a type of ghost or spirit that is responsible for physical disturbances such as loud noises or objects being moved or destroyed, which this haunting and I'm doing quotes in the air, you know, definitely had a lot of that aspect. But it also had more aspects of what would be, I would think, an intellectual haunting. Do you know what that is? Do you know what the difference is? Not really, I don't think. Really? There's intellectual, there's poltergeist, which is noisy spirit, and then there's intellectual, and then there's um, residual. Residual is something that's playing on a loop over and over again. So intellectual, sort of the definition, I guess, of intellectual would be they can speak, they can make noises, they can touch you, or even emit an odor like perfume or cigar smoke. And... Experts say that this type of ghost retains its former personality from when it was alive and it can feel emotions. And often they are visiting you to comfort you or let you know something important. This ghost definitely had more attributes of an intellectual haunting as opposed to a poltergeist activity, although it did both. But as we get into the stories, you'll you'll hear the difference. Other theories are that it's not a ghost at all, but a witch. So I don't know. It's kind of confusing. Of this house. Haunting this house. Yeah, but it, it goes everywhere. It mm-hmm. doesn't just stay at this house. The happenings at the Bell Farm provoked fear and curiosity in this small farming community and has remained unexplained for over 200 years. It's an inspiration for many fictional ghost stories. Some say um, Blair Witch Project was based on the Blair on the Bell Witch. I don't know if that's true. I've never seen 
Did you ever see that? No, I haven't seen it. I didn't watch it. The Bell Witch Haunting involved real people and is substantiated by eyewitness accounts, affidavits, and manuscripts penned by those who experienced the haunting firsthand. I've read, I think, two of the books. The one I didn't read all the way, but I've read two of the books. This distinction was led by Nandor, Dr. Nandor Fodor, a noted researcher and psychologist, and he labeled the Bell Witch legend as America's greatest ghost story, which goes back to it being a ghost as opposed to a witch. I counted at least seven books written about the Bell Witch, including several accounts by family members and people who were there in 1817. One early account of the Bell Witch haunting was written in 1886 by historian Albert Virgil Goodpaster in his um, book, The History of Tennessee. And I'm just going to read you part of what he wrote. A remarkable occurrence which attracted widespread interest was connected with the family of John Bell, who settled near what is now Adams Station in about 1804. So great was the excitement that people came from hundreds of miles around to witness manifestations of what was popularly known as the Bell Witch. This witch was supposed to be some spiritual being having the voice and attributes of a woman. It was invisible to the eye, yet it could hold a conversation and even shake hands with certain individuals. Freaks that it performed were wonderful and seemingly designed to annoy the family. It would take sugar from the bowls, spill the milk, take the quilts from the beds, slap and pinch the children, then laugh at the discomfort of its victims. At first, it was supposed to be a good spirit, but its subsequent acts, together with the curses with which it supplemented its remarks, proved the contrary. A volume might be written concerning the performance of this wonderful being, as they are now described by contemporaries and their descendants. That all this actually occurred will not be disputed, nor will a rational explanation be attempted. That's what he wrote. The story begins like this. You ready? Mm -hmm. In the early 1800s, well, actually 1804 to be exact, John Bell moved with his family from North Carolina to the Red River bottomland in Robertson County, Tennessee, and they settled in a community, Red River, which became Adams, which currently is Adams, Tennessee. Bell purchased some land and a large house for his family. And then I wanted to give a description of John Bell because whenever I'm I'm doing research, particularly it's probably why it takes me so long, or I'm um, telling a story about someone or even listening to other podcasts, I constantly go on Google looking for images of the people. And in this case, I only found one picture of John Bell or his family. So, and I'm not even certain, absolutely certain that that's them. So instead of a photo, I'm, we're going to have to make do with a written description that I found. John Bell had a commanding appearance and steadfast qualities with force of character that at once gave him rank and influence in the community. His wife, Lucy Bell, was an excellent mother with piercing eyes and a loving smile. The book that I'm reading says everyone was in love with Mrs. Bell. Many wondered at the power of her influence and charming discipline. Betsy Bell, who the story is primarily about also, was described as a blue-eyed beauty and their family as a whole was considered happy and very prosperous. Over the next several years after they moved into the community, John acquired more land, increasing his holdings to 328 acres and cleared a number of fields for planting. He was also made elder of the Red River Baptist Church. The Bells had three more children after moving to Tennessee, Elizabeth, which is Betsy that we were just talking about, was born in, in 1806, Richard in 1811, and Joel in 1813. One day in 1817, this is right when the story starts, John Bell, so when they moved in, they didn't have any of the problems. Same house, everything. They didn't have any of the issues. It didn't start. It, they moved in in 1804, had all these children, and the whole thing didn't start till 1817. Okay. One day in 1817, and now this story is described in several different ways, but I'm giving you the gist of what I figured out. John Bell was inspecting his cornfield when he encountered a strange-looking animal sitting in the middle of a corn row. 
Shocked by the appearance of this animal, which had the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit, Belle shot at it several times. The animal seemed unkillable, if that's even a word, I don't even know. He shot at it and hit the marks that would have killed a dog or rabbit easily, but after several shots, it didn't react like a wounded animal would, or even react to the shots at all, other than to be annoyed that it was being shot at. Bell thought nothing about the incident, at least until after dinner. So, like, he said that, like, he shot at it. Now, this, again, I read probably seven different renditions of the same thing. He saw the animal. He saw the animal, and it, like, ignored him. So then he shot at it, and it hit the shoulder, and the animal, like, didn't really flinch, but, like, looked at him, like, did you just shoot me? And then he shot again. And the animal, like, reared up, and then he shot again, which he felt would have hit the heart, but it didn't It didn't react. It didn't cry out in pain. It didn't, like, rear back. Nothing. It just vanished. Just disappeared. Poof. Interesting. So, so where is this Where is this from? Adams, Tennessee. No, where are you reading that account from? I, I told you I read, like, seven different ones. Oh, right. That it, there's tons of them. I'll tell like longer versions of it and shorter versions of it. But the gist of it is that he killed, he shot at the animal and he felt that he hit all the marks that would have killed a dog or a rabbit easily. But it, he didn't kill it. It just kind of loped off or disappeared. They Some say that it turned and left. Some say that it completely just vanished right before his eyes. Bell thought nothing about the incident, at least until not after dinner. That evening, the bells began hearing beating sounds on the outside of the walls of their log house. Some accounts say that the bells had seen other mysterious things prior to the sounds outside the house starting. One account said that Betsy Bell had been walking through the woods near their home and had seen what she described as a pretty girl in a green dress swinging from a tree. As she got closer, the girl disappeared into thin air. In another account, one of the bell boys had seen an animal that at first he thought was a turkey on the fence post near the home and he ran and got a gun and shot at it it spread its wings and flew away and he realized it wasn't a turkey at all but some kind of other giant bird that he'd never seen before so they all had like these weird little incidents but no one really talked about it even that night with the knocking on the outside of their house they still hadn't put two together that all these weird occurrences had happened over the last 13 years or whatever All of these things were easily explained away at the time that it was happening, and it wasn't until after all the other activity had started that they started to question all the things they had seen prior. The sounds at night continued night after night with increased frequency and force each night. Bell and his sons would hurry outside to catch the culprit, but always return having found nothing. In the weeks that followed, the Bell children began waking up frightened, complaining that rats were gnawing at their bedposts. They would jump from the bed and search for the source of the sound, but like the knocking... Each time they would find nothing. The sound would move from room to room. Once a candle was lit lighting the room, the sound would begin in another room where it was dark. The sound of rats gnawing soon became the sound of dogs fighting. Not long after that, they started complaining of their bed covers being pulled from them and their pillows violently being pulled from under their heads and then thrown on the floor. This went on for a long time. John Bell started to have a physical reaction, or as they call it in the books I'm reading, an affliction where he couldn't eat. He called it a stiffness of tongue, and when he tried to eat, it would feel like he had a stick in his mouth that would push the food back out. Ew. Right? Yeah. Like, it's so weird. He felt like he was being attacked, and the oldest daughter, Betsy, was being attacked. Like, Betsy, they started, Mr. and Mrs. Bell started staying up all night. 
just to watch their kids because their kids couldn't sleep. Like they would start to fall asleep and then it would sound like a rat was gnawing at their bedpost. Like they could feel the bed moving. They could, it sounded like a rat and they would jump up and nothing would be on the bedpost and nothing would be there. Yeah. And then they would start to fall asleep and the blankets would just be ripped off. Like not nicely. It was violently. And then at some point, Betsy started getting like smacked on the face where she would have. Wells. Yeah, she would have like a handprint on her face. As time went on, the bells began hearing faint whispering voices. They were too weak to understand, but sounded like a feeble old woman singing hymns. As the encounters escalated, the bells' youngest daughter, Betsy, began experiencing brutal encounters with an invisible entity, like I was saying. It would pull her hair and slap her relentlessly, often leaving welts and handprints on her face and body. The entity's voice strengthened over time to the point that it was loud and unmistakable. It sang hymns, quoted scripture, carried on intelligent conversations, and once even quoted word for word two sermons that were preached at the same time on the same day, 13 miles apart. Like, clearly, just preached the sermons. So they just heard these voices like it was like a radio or something. Kind of. I guess that's how I picture it. Like, it was coming from the walls. Like, they couldn't see anything. The disturbances which John Bell told his family to keep secret eventually escalated to a point that he decided to share his family trouble with his closest friend, which was his neighbor, James Johnston. Now, mind you, this is more than a year later. The family had endured all these things happening on a nightly basis for a really long time. The Bell, two Bell parents wouldn't sleep. They would stay up to protect their children from something they couldn't see or touch. John Bell finally asked his friend James to spend the night in their home to see if he could help explain what was happening. Johnston and his wife spent the night at the Bell home, where they were subjected to the same terrifying disturbances that the Bells had experienced. After having his bed covers removed and being slapped repeatedly, Johnston sprang out of bed, exclaiming, In the name of the Lord, who are you and what do you want? There was no response, but the remainder of the night was relatively peaceful. Johnston said that he felt that the phenomenon was beyond his comprehension. It was evidently supernatural and of intelligent character. He arrived at the conclusion after the fact that it ceased action when spoken to, and it certainly understand the language he used. He advised Bell to invite other friends into the investigation and try by all means for detecting the mystery, to which he consented, and then from this time forward it became public, like everyone started talking about it. All the neighbors were invited, committees were formed. That just always cracks me up. Committees were formed to figure out what was happening at the Bell House. Experiments were tried, and close watch was kept in and out every night, but all of their wits were stifled. The demonstrations all the while were increasing in force, and Betsy was so severely punished that Lucy and John feared for her safety. Since a lot of the violent activity seemed to be directed more at Betsy and John, Betsy was sent away to other people's houses to sleep, but the activity followed her, leading some to believe or remark that she was the cause of the whole thing, that she was doing it. Interesting. The brother, the story that I read um, that her brother wrote was just like, he was aghast that his sister would have anything to do with it. Yeah. Because how was she slapping her dad? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like she could have been acting like these things were happening to her. I don't know how she would create welts on her own face, but she could, how was she making the rat sounds in her brother's rooms? And how was her dad not able to speak? Like his tongue would swell up. Yeah. So that doesn't even really make sense. Finally, there was an answer to one of the questions. You know, everyone would come in and ask questions like, what are you doing? Who are you? And um, the response was, the first was the first time they asked, well, the first time they got a response. The response was that I'm a spirit. I was once very happy, but I have been disturbed. And they would be like in the house talking about something. And like the witch would, what they called the witch, 
this entity would speak freely during their conversations. Like they were discussing that one of the sons was going on a trip to do something, I think in North Carolina about his dad's business Mm -hmm. and the, this, the voice, I don't even know what to call it. Voice, which entity um, predicted that it was going to be a bad trip, that he was going to get there off or not, that things weren't going to be ready, that, uh, just overall, it would be a really bad trip, and it it came all of it came true. He got there, the paperwork wasn't finished. There was nothing they could do about it. His horse, something happened to his horse coming back. Like everything that she said, came exactly true. And then she kept saying that she was a disturbed spirit. And then at one point, she said that she was a disturbed spirit looking for her tooth, which there was something earlier. The two of the boys had found a skull or something when they were digging, which apparently wasn't that unusual to happen. Back in the 1800s, they would be digging to build something and they would find people buried because people would be just buried on their farm or Indians were buried or whatever. And the two boys were messing with the skull. This was years before this all started happening, by the way. And they were messing with the skull and one of the boys threw the skull against the wall and a tooth broke out of it. And so the tooth fell in between the slats and the floorboards. And then they didn't think that much about it. They cleaned it up and whatever, moved on with their lives. Well, when she said that she was a spirit and she was disturbed and she lost a tooth, they, they brought people in and like tore up all the floorboard, floorboards looking for the tooth that had fallen out, thinking that that would somehow like, appease her. And yeah, and it didn't. Um, where word spread about the talking witch because she would have full-blown com- they would be in there the committees would be in there discussing what they were going to do and she would give her two cents about everything just a sound just a voice in the air some people say this is folklore that none of this really happened but other people have written books and said it definitely happened I don't know it sounds really crazy to me the excitement of what was now being called a witch it wasn't called a ghost anymore Grew. The fame of the witch had become widespread and people came from all over, all welcomed by the Bell family, not for money or fame, as they never charged anything. And that's what someone else accused them, that they had rigged something or figured a way to do this, mm-hmm. like with a megaphone outside the house or something. They had someone positioned to like under the house and was talking or whatever, but they never charged anyone to be in the house to hear whatever they heard. And they welcomed people and, like, fed them. If they needed a place to stay, they would give them a place to stay. Like, they didn't they didn't monetize it at all. So what would be the benefit of doing that? I don't get it. All were welcomed by the Bell family, but not for money or fame, as they never charged for anything. But hoping that someone had the ability to either stop or explain what it was. That's all they wanted. They invited everyone. Some of the people who came were detectives, confident that they would be able to figure it out. Some thought it was an evil spirit. Some declared it was just witchcraft. Many asked the entity every variation of who or what it was, and it stuck to the story that it was a spirit that had been disturbed until one day it gave a whole other explanation. This time it said, I am the spirit of an early immigrant who brought a large sum of money and buried my treasure for safekeeping until needed. In the meantime, I died without divulging the secret, and now I have returned in spirit for the purpose of making known the hiding place, and I want Betsy Bell to have all the money. Nice. Right? (laughs) All questions then became where the money was hidden. The spirit refused until certain things were done and conditions were met. The first being that Drew Bell and Bennett Porter would agree to exhume the money and give every dollar to Betsy. That old sugar mouth. She had nicknames for people. 
I'm just like picturing this as literally like you and I sitting at the dinner table having conversation conversation and just a random voice is like hovering over us. That's kind of how they describe it. That seems so unreal to right? me. I know, and then it's demanding that certain conditions are met to tell them tell them where the money is. She picked the two people she wanted to go. And then like I said, I started to say old sugar mouth. That's um James Johnson. That's the first man that spent the night at their house, the neighbor. She called him Old Sugar Mouth, and then she called John Bell Old Jack. Like she has had nicknames. Yeah, for, it's I mean, weird. Jack is always a nickname for John. That's normal. Mm-hmm. But it there's a familiarity. That's what kind of throws me. Like, why is she calling James Johnson that Old Sugar Mouth? So anyway, she said that Old Sugar Mouth would go with them and make sure it was done, and that he should be the one to count the money and take charge of it for Betsy. The spirit, which they call his spirit too, insisted that they leave at dawn the next day and described exactly down to the last minute detail where to find the treasure. The three went and found the area and worked all day moving a large rock. It was under a rock is what she, she, he, whatever, told them it was, where the money was. So they dug all day to get to under this rock and there was no money. So they thought, oh, they probably buried it under the rocks. And they dug a six by six foot hole, which clearly took all day to find the treasure. But the money wasn't there. When they returned to the house, the spirit laughed at them because they were so easily duped. She described exactly what they went through looking for the treasure as if she had also been there. Like she said, she told them like how they originally found the tree that she had described and like, oh, this is the tree. Oh, and this is the rock. Oh, we need to move this rock. Like she described to them what they did the whole Full day. Full play, play, Yeah, of what they had done. Word of the supernatural phenomenon soon spread outside the settlement, even in Nashville, where the then Major General Andrew Jackson took a keen interest. General Jackson's party came from Nashville with a wagon loaded with a tent and provisions, bent on a good time and much fun investigating the witch. He just wanted to see what was going on. The men were riding on horseback and were following along in the rear of the wagon as they approached near the place. They were discussing the matter and planning how they were going to do up the witch, like kind of making fun of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Just then, traveling over a smooth, level piece of road, the wagon halted and stuck fast. The driver popped his whip, whooped and shouted at his team, and the horses pulled with all their might. They could not move the wagon an inch. It was dead stuck as if it was welded to the earth. General Jackson commanded all his men to dismount and put their shoulders to the wheels and give the wagon a push, but it was all in vain. The wheels were then taken off one by one and examined and found to be all right, revolving easily on all the axles. General Jackson, after a few moments, realized that they were in a fix, threw up his hands, exclaiming, By eternal boys, it is the witch. Then came the sound of a sharp, metallic voice from the bushes, saying, all right, General, let the wagon move on. I'll see you again tonight. The men, in bewildered astonishment, looked in every direction to see if they could discover where the strange voice came from, but could find no explanation. The horses then started unexpectedly on their own accord, and the wagon rolled along lightly and smoothly as ever. (laughs) It seems like this just can't all be real things that happen. It all seems so unbelievable, right? Yeah. According to some versions of the story, Jackson did indeed encounter the Bill Bell Witch that night. Now, there's a bunch of different stories about what happened. The Sun writes that, that General Andrew Jackson, Jackson, I can't say Jackson. <laughs> the, the Sun claims that General Andrew Jackson did come to the house and that the, Bets, the Betsy Bell screamed all night from pinching and slapping she'd received from the witch. Jackson's covers were ripped off as quickly as he could put them back on. 
and he had his entire party of men slapped, pinched, and had their hair pulled by the witch. When Jackson and his men decided to hightail it out of Adams in the morning, Jackson was later quoted as saying, I'd rather fight the British in New Orleans than have to fight the Bell Witch. He became president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And he's saying this all happened. I don't know. Seems so unbelievable. Yeah. Over time, Betsy Bell became interested in a boy. Now, this is significant. He was named Joshua Gardner, a young man who lived not far from her. With the blessing of her parents, they decided to marry. Everyone was happy about the engagement, except for the Bell Witch. For reasons unknown to this day, she repeatedly told Betsy not to marry Joshua Gardner. Betsy and Joshua's former school teacher, Richard Powell, had been noticeably interested in Betsy for some time also, and had expressed interest in marrying her when she became older. By some accounts, Powell, who was 11 years older than Betsy, was a student of the occult, although it's never been proved. He was secretly married to a woman in nearby Nashville, an Esther Scott, during the time he spent at Red River, expressing his fondness for Betsy. According to old accounts, Powell politely expressed his disappointment with Betsy's engagement and wished her a long and prosperous marriage with Joshua Gardner. Betsy and Joshua could not go near the river or the field or the cave to play. Well, play? They were talking about getting married. <laughs> Without the entity taunting them persistently, their patience finally reached a critical mass, and on Easter Monday, Easter Monday back then, Betsy met Joshua at the river and broke off their engagement. The disturbances decreased after Betsy ended her engagement, for her, but the entity continued to express his dislike for John Bell and vowed relentlessly to kill him. But stopped when she finally got non-engaged. She ended up marrying, I, I googled it, I mean I ancestry the crap out of it. She ended up marrying the teacher. Interesting. Right? He was yeah. 11 years older than her. He was her teacher. Yeah, but that back then I don't think that was uncommon. Well, I don't think it's uncommon. I'm pretty sure one of the girls in my high school married one of our teachers. So because the witch sort of lightened up on Betsy Bell, she went full force against John Bell. Bell had been experiencing episodes of twitching of his face and difficulty swallowing for over a year now. And it seemed to grow worse with time. By the fall of 1820, his declining health had, had confined him to the house, where the entity commenced removing his shoes when he tried to walk and slapping his face when he experienced seizures. Her loud, shrill voice could be heard all over the farm, cursing and chastising old Jack Bell, as she often referred to him. During the time, the witch, as it was called, would quote entire sermons that happened in different churches. It even would answer questions about things going on in the community. Always friendly to Mrs. Bell, which she liked. She liked Lucy Bell. Lucy, one night, asked if anyone knew if the eldest boy had returned from a trip. He, had, he moved. He didn't live on the farm anymore. He lived about a mile away. And had not come by. The spirit was heard to say, hold on, Luce. I'll find out. <laughs> I can't take any of this seriously. Hold on, Luce. I'll find out. Moments later, <laughs> you literally spit laughed right there. Well, I just can't. I know. Don't you love the nicknames? Hold on, Luce. I'll yeah, find out. Like it's just your friend, that, your roommate. Right? Like I can't. Moments later, the voice returned saying, yes, he's safely home reading by candlelight. The next day, the son was told what had happened, and he said that when he got home, he sat at the table to read, and at one point, the door opened and closed quickly. Oh, my. The identity. Now, this is like the entire family, though, Haley. I don't care. No, we, we don't have. <laughs> you I, over it? No. The identity of the Bell Witch is still not certain. In the book, Our Family Trouble, the story of the Bell Witch, the writer William Bell says that one day, the Reverend James Gunn asked very earnestly who the spirit was and why it was doing what it was doing. The witch replied that she couldn't lie to a preacher 
and if the plain truth must be known, she would come clean. She was a neighbor of the Bells, a lady named Kate Batts. Many people clearly were eager to believe she was the wife of a man named Frederick Batts, a sick man who she had to care for, and she was left to care for the farm and home. The son who wrote the book said she was actually a kind-hearted woman and a good neighbor towards those she liked. He did specifically say she was a good neighbor towards those she liked, quote unquote. He said that she didn't deserve to be associated with the entity that was torturing the Bell family. She was a woman well-known for her eccentricities. Many people believed her to be a witch, and she had a habit, for instance, of begging pins from any woman that she met. According to superstition of the day, loaning a pin to someone gave that person witch-like control over the lender. Like giving them a pin, a hairpin. Not hairpin, I'm asking. Maybe I don't even know. Maybe it's not even a hairpin. Not everyone believed in witches, of course, but everyone in the neighborhood made a practice of hiding their pins any time that Kate Bats came to call. The author, this is the son, did not believe the entity to be the witch of Kate Bats. She was alive, by the way. I was going to say, did she die before all no, this happened? No, she wasn't a ghost, so that's the whole thing. Like, <sighs> Nevertheless, the story continues today. In some way, John Bell had mishandled some dealing with Kate Bats. The author did not believe that the entity, the author of the son did not believe the entity to be the witch of Kate Batts. Nevertheless, the story continues today that in some way John Bell had mishandled some dealings with Kate Batts and she felt that he had harmed her and her family and that's why she haunted him until his death. This is a complicated thing. I can't find where Kate Batts died before John Bell. Like the One of the books I read spoke about her as if she was still alive while he was writing. Like, I can't explain it. Like, just the way that he spoke. He wasn't saying, oh, she died on... Because they say it all started that, 1817. They don't say that she died in 1817. Do you know what I mean? So, the day she died, all this haunting started. Like, I can't figure it out. It's very confusing to me. Are they saying that she's alive, but she's a witch, and she can control and make... Make these things happen. Yeah, show up at people's houses. Yeah. Or are they saying that the ghost of... That's what we need to figure out. The death of John Bell. The torment of the Bell House continued for many years, culminating in the ghost's ultimate act of vengeance upon the man she claimed had cheated her. She took responsibility for his death. In October of 1820, Bell was struck with an illness while walking to the pigsty of the farm. Some believe that he suffered a stroke since thereafter he had difficulty speaking and swallowing. In and out of bed for several weeks, his health declined. The Tennessee State University in Nashville, Tennessee, tells this part of the story. On the morning of no- December 19th, he failed to awake at his regular time. When the family noticed he was sleeping unnaturally, they attempted to rouse him. They discovered Bell was in a stupor and couldn't be completely awakened. John Jr. went to the medicine cupboard to get his father's medicine and noticed it was gone with a strange vial in its place. No one claimed to have replaced the medicine with the vial. A doctor was summoned to the house. The witch began taunting that she had placed the vial in the medicine cabinet and given Bell a dose of it while he slept. Contents of the vial were tested on a cat and discovered tested on the cat and discovered to be highly poisonous. John Bell died December twentieth. The witch was quiet until after the funeral. After the grave was filled, the witch began singing loudly and happily. This continued until all friends and family left the gravesite. Join us next week for part two of the Bell Witch. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so please be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Also, you can join our Patreon site for exclusive content, upcoming contests, and information only available to our Patreon members. Visit our website at huntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all the social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. <laughs>